It's the Zero Lives Left podcast, episode 42. Welcome to the Zero Lives Left podcast. What is it you have always wanted to do? Are you stuck going around in circles? Sound familiar? Maybe you have always wanted to start a business. Maybe there's a particular career path you've wanted to follow. Each episode, we bring you an inspiring insight from someone who has done it, how they did it, along with actionable tips on how you can make it happen. Now, here's your host, Wayne Denner. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Zero Lives Left podcast. My name is Wayne. I'm your host on this journey. Thank you once again for tuning back in to another episode of the show. As always, if this is your first time coming across the podcast, you've no idea what it's all about. Let me give you a quick rundown on how things work around here. Each episode, we bring you no-nonsense, real, right-to-the-point podcast banter on business career and life. Maybe you're somebody who's always wanted to start a business or get started in a particular career path. This podcast provides you with real and practical advice and tips which you can apply to help you succeed on your business, career and life journey covering a range of topics. We will have something which will help you along on your journey. As always, if there's somebody you would like me to feature on the show, a guest you would like me to interview, please do get in touch. You can drop me an email into studio at zerolivesleftpodcast.com or you can send me a tweet to at zerolivesleft. Don't forget, reviews are really important and they do help other people find out about the show. So if you're listening to this podcast today on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio or Allcast, please do rate and review the podcast. Give it a little share. Reviews are really important and they do help other people find out about the show. I've got a really exciting announcement today to announce on the podcast. My podcasting ebook is now available to download via the Zero Lives Left podcast website. Check it out if you're somebody who wants to launch a podcast, but you've got no idea where to start. That was me four years ago. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know how to produce a podcast, what equipment I needed, where I was going to host the podcast and all of that stuff. I have created a simple ebook that you can download via the website. Seven simple steps to successfully launch your podcast. So stop by the Zero Lives Left podcast.com website. Check it out. Lots of great stuff on the website, previous guest interviews, um, lots of other information about the show. So make sure you stop by and you check that out. Today, we've got an amazing episode lined up for you today. This is a guy that I've been wanting to get onto the podcast now for some time, ever since I first listened to his podcast, The Online Fraudcast. I am chatting with former United States Most Wanted Brett Gollumfun Johnson, referred to by the United States Secret Service as the original internet godfather. Brett talks openly and honestly about his time as a cyber criminal to being on the FBI's most wanted list to turning it all around to now speaking all over the world and working and consulting with businesses and organizations, helping them protect themselves against cybercrime. So much great information in this podcast today. Make sure you have a pen and a piece of paper handy. Lots of great takeaways, lots of great tips. But all right, let's not waste any more time and get right in to episode 42 of the Zero Lives Left podcast. Former United States Most Wanted Brett Gollumfun Johnson, referred to by the United States Secret Service as the original internet godfather, has been a central figure in the cybercrime world for almost 20 years. Mr. Johnson built and was a leader of Shadow Crew, the precursor for today's darknet markets. He was instrumental in developing many areas of online fraud while helping design and implement and refine modern identity theft, account takeover fraud, card not present fraud, IRS tax fraud, and countless other social engineering breaches and hacking operations. Brent, thanks for taking time out to join me on episode 42 of the Zero <laughs> Lives Left 
podcast. Thank can you we, for having me. Can we rewind and give our listeners a little bit of an overview on your backstory? I know there's a lot to cover here. And I've kind of, <laughs> and I've kind of jumped into a few of the key areas, but, but let's sure. take people back to that whole United States uh, Secret Service, you know, the most wanted list. And let's give our listeners a bit of a journey on your backstory. Sure. So uh, so the backstory, it's, uh, it's not a short backstory by any length of the imagination. So my backstory, I began crime when I was 10 years old. And what happened was, is my mother was a very, a very abusive parent. She was uh, not physically abusive, but emotionally, mentally, verbally, very negligent. Uh, she used to leave me and my sister alone for, for days at a time. This one particular time, she had been gone for a few days. Uh, she usually went out and partied with men and, and would leave me and Denise at home. I was 10. Denise, uh, my sister, was 9. So she, we were alone for a few days and didn't have any food in the house. And Denise walks in one day and she's carrying this pack of pork chops with her. And I'm like, where'd you get those? And she looks at me and she's like, I stole them. And I'm like, huh, show me how you did that. So she takes me over and she shows me how she's boosting food. And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, that's a great idea. So we start stealing food and we look across the way in the same shopping complex and there's there's a department store there and well they've got clothes there so we start stealing clothes and it continues from there like this perverted form of Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know the toys games jewelry music books all this other stuff mom after a few days she comes home and she notices all the ill-gotten loot and she looks at us and she says where'd this come from and I was always the kid that lied about it because I've always been <laughs> I've always I've always been that liar so I looked at her and I was like um, found it and uh, she's like no you didn't find that my my sister she stands up half proud about it, half pissed off. And she was like, we stole it. My mom looks at my sister and she was, show me how you did that. So she joins us. Not only does she join us, but she uh, gets her mom to join us as well. And that's, uh, we became this intergenerational shoplifting ring in Eastern Kentucky. That was the first time, first real crimes I committed at that point. That's when I found out my mom was also this fraudster. As I got older, I got more and more involved and those crimes that side of my family was committing until finally in, in 1994, I financed my first marriage by faking a car accident and claiming the insurance money on that. I used that money to go to university at the University of Kentucky, majored in uh, literature and theater, of all things. Um, I was carrying a full-time class load, uh, working 40 hours a week. Uh, I was always that person that was scared of being abandoned by the people that I loved. Um, so I, not, not only being scared of being abandoned, but I always bought love. So it was always, you know, it wasn't enough for me to tell someone I loved them. I had to show it by giving them some sort of gifts. So with my, my first wife, I was like, you know, don't worry about working. I'll do all the work. No, I'll do all the cooking and cleaning. It's fine. I've got that. Well, I couldn't do it all. Something had to give and what gave was the job. Well, with that proclivity toward fraud I already had built in me, you have to make money. And I was like, okay, no idea how I'm going to do that. Well, I find the internet and uh, the first one of the first sites I find is eBay. And man, I fell in love with eBay. I spend hours just surfing all the things for sale and everything. And I knew there had to be some way to make money. Didn't understand what that would be until one night I'm watching Inside Edition. It was this television show and they had uh, the, the host was a guy named Bill Riley that later on he would end up on Fox News. But he was talking about Beanie Babies that night. And I was sitting there watching the show and they were profiling this. And for those listeners who don't know what Beanie Babies were, they were the high dollar collector in the mid to late 90s. This one peanut the royal blue elephant went for $1,500 after market. So you could uh, you could collect these things and lines would form at, at the outside of stores when the new ones were released and people would buy them and they'd put them in plastic containers and, and save them in the hopes of paying college tuition or homes or retirement fund or what have you. So they were profiling peanut the royal blue elephant there and I was sitting there watching it and I started thinking, you know, I need to find me a peanut. So I, I skipped classes the next day, go around all the shops looking for this little guy. Well, they don't have him because he's on eBay for 1500 But they've got all these little gray elephants for $8. And I'm sitting there looking at him. I'm like, okay, I could do that. So I buy a gray elephant for $8, stop by another store on the way home, pick up a pack of blue dye, go home and try to dye the little guy. Well, I'll find out pretty quickly. He's made out of polyester, doesn't hold dye very well. Get him out of the bath. Looks like he's got the mange. So I was didn't know what to do. And I, I got online and uh, found a picture of a real one, posted that on eBay and uh, put 
one up for sale. And a lady believed I had the real one. She won the bid for it for 1500 And then her an email directly after she won. And I was like, hey, I don't know if I can trust you. So what I need you to do is I need you to send me a United States postal money order. Once that clears, I'll send you your animal. She believed that. Sent me the animal. Uh, sent me the uh, the money order. It clears. I send her the animal right after it clears, and I immediately get this phone call. And that phone call was, I didn't order this. And my response was, "Lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant." And that's, uh, I mean, it's 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 funny, but it's horrible too. I mean, I ripped her off at fifteen hundred, and uh, I learned my first lesson of uh, of cybercrime there. And that lesson was if you delay a victim long enough, if you just keep putting them off, a lot of them get so exasperated, they throw their hands up in the air, walk away, and very few of them ever complain to law enforcement. That's one, that's one of the first things I found out right there. Very few people ever, ever call the police to complain about anything. It continued from there. I got uh, involved in a pirated software. Pirated software turned into uh, installing mod chips into first gaming systems so you could play the pirated games. Then it turned into installing mod chips into cable television boxes so that everyone could watch all the pay-per-view channels. Finally, in the uh, mid to late 90s, a Canadian judge ruled that it was legal for Canadian citizens to pirate satellite DSS signals, uh, those small 18-inch satellite dishes. So what that meant was in the United States, you could go down down to a place called Best Buy, buy a complete system for $100, take it out in the parking lot, pull the the card out, the the actual program card out of the system, throw the rest of the system away, uh, program the card, send it up to Canada, make $500 a pop. And I started doing that, was making a lot of money, had so many orders, I couldn't fill them all. And I quickly thought to myself, well, why do I need to fill any of them? They're in Canada. I'm down in the United States. It's illegal anyway. So I didn't fill any of the orders, got worried about, uh, made a lot more money at that point, but got worried about how much money was coming in, figured the best thing that I could do is get a fake driver's license, use the driver's license to open up a bank account, launder the money under someone else's name. Uh, being at university, I had <laughs> you would think I would know where to get a driver's license. I had no idea. So I got online, looked around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200, Send him my picture, and he rips me off, and uh, I get angry. I get so angry that the 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 result ended up being Shadow Crew. So if you look at at cybercrime before Shadow Crew, and there were actually two sites. It was Counterfeit Library. Library was the first site that I built. The second site was Shadow Crew. So if you look at those two sites, if you were looking to engage in cybercrime, any type of organized cybercrime, like buying personal uh, information, credit card details, bank logins, uh, get fake driver's license, anything else like that, there was no real platform to do that before Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew gave uh, that platform for criminals to use. It also gave this trust mechanism for criminals to use. So now a criminal knew who he could trust. He knew who had what specific skill levels, who had what items for sale, if the items were actually any good, a number of things, uh, potentially who was law enforcement, who was not. So Shadow Crew and, and Counterfeit Library solved those problems. Shadow Crew goes on to make the front cover of Forbes, August of 2004. The headline was, Who's Stealing Your identity. October 26, 2004, the United States Secret Service, they arrested 33 people, six countries in six hours. And I was the only guy who got away. They picked me up um, February 8, 2005 and gave me a job. So uh, they, um, I, by that point, I had uh, I had already invented this thing called tax return identity theft. I was stealing $160,000 a week doing that. I had stepped away from Shadow Crew because we had... Um, we started seeing IP numbers from law enforcement on state and local sites. We started seeing law enforcement discussing Shadow Crew. We had a member who actually hacked into, at that point, the, the uh, Secret Service was using T-Mobile as a phone provider. We had a member who hacked into T-Mobile, and he actually captured some of the uh, text messages about Secret Service investigating us. So I was scared to death at that point and stepped away from Shadow Crew. Uh, what had happened was, is right after I stepped away from Shadow Crew, our forum techie, a guy named Albert Gonzalez. Um, he went by the screen name of Cumba Johnny. He gets arrested. He was in New Jersey. We had a thing called the uh, CBV1 hack. So we were uh, programming plastic mag stripe cards with track two data. So those who don't know out there, if you look at the back of your credit or debit card, that magnetic stripe on there, there are three data tracks. First data track is the customer's name. Second data track is the card number, an equal sign, and a 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. The third data track is called indiscriminate data. No one uses it. So in order for you to use a card and an ATM, you have to have that second data track. The problem was, is that we were phishing all this data. So we would send out phishing emails. We would capture, you know, thousands upon thousands of people's information on a daily basis. So we were getting the card numbers and the pins 
but we could not get that algorithm to, to encode track two. What we found out, though, is that at that time, no bank in the United States, and I mean no bank, had implemented what was called the hash. So if you had the card number, you could take the card number, put an equal sign, and any 16 digits out beside of it, it would encode and you could take it to an ATM and cash it out. So we started doing that, and and the money that was being stolen at that point, to give you an idea, uh, before that we were doing C&P fraud, card not present fraud. So we were basically ordering items online, getting the items in, and then cashing them out and putting money in pocket. I was making at that point $30,000 to $40,000 a month just from that. Once the CVV1 hack was was discovered, instead of thirty dollars to $40,000 a month, it became thirty dollars to $40,000 a day. And that specifically is what got law enforcement's attention. Well, Robert Gonzalez, our forum techie, he starts cashing out doing the CVV1 stuff. So he's in New Jersey, broad daylight one day. He's standing at an ATM for 40 minutes, 40 minutes. He's got a backpack. He's got a stack of white plastic guards. And in broad daylight, he's just feeding one one card into an ATM after another, collecting $20 bills, stuffing them in this backpack. Meanwhile, across the street, there's these two New Jersey cops. They start noticing this kid that's been at this ATM machine all this time. Finally, after 40 minutes, one of the cops looks at the other and he's like, he's like you know, I'm going to ask this guy what the hell's going on. So, so he walks across the street, walks up to Albert. Albert's wearing a wig. He's got a disguise on and Albert falls apart right there. I mean, he literally falls apart. He uh, he tells the cop everything that's going on. Albert ends up working for the United States Secret Service. By that point, I had stepped out of the way, so I didn't have any, uh, you know, I didn't get captured or anything when Shadow Crew was shut down. So the Secret Service arrested me February 8th in Charleston, South Carolina. I was running counterfeit cashier's checks at that time. So they arrest me, come in, pull me out of the cell, and they asked me a question. They were like, um, what can you do for us? And my my answer, uh, actually my answer was, um, I was dating this, uh, I was dating the stripper at this point. I've been married for nine years. My wife leaves me. I go through this horrible depression, start seeing a psychologist and then get lonely one night and start seeing a stripper fall in love with her. I was, I literally, I'm that idiot that fell in love with the first stripper that he sees move her in my house, um, find out she's addicted to drugs after, right after I move her in. But, uh, I ended up getting engaged to her and, um, I was crazy about her, but uh, the Secret Service, they pulled me out of the cell after I'd been arrested, and they said, what can you do for us? And my exact response was, well, you let me get back with Elizabeth, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. So they let me sit in the county jail for three months to get a taste of what confinement was like. Get me out. The night that I get out, that exact same night, I start breaking the law again. Um, That lasted for 10 months. I broke the law from inside of the Secret Service offices, both credit card fraud and tax fraud. At the end of 10 months, the Secret Service finds out they revoked my bond and uh, sent me back to the county jail. The problem was, is I was only under state charges at that point. I wasn't federally indicted. So a state judge ends up reinstating the bond, ruling that the Secret Service had revoked it improperly. They reinstate my bond. I walk out of the jail. No one calls the Secret Service to tell them I walked out. And I quickly decided that the best thing that Brett Johnson could do was to run for it. So I go on a cross-country crime spree, still 600000 U.S. dollars in about four months. One morning, I wake up the night before I'd stolen $160,000 out of ATMs in Las Vegas, Nevada. Wake up the next morning, sign on to cartersmarket.com. There's my name, United States Most Wanted beside of it. And uh, that is one of these it's really one of these, instead of an aha moment, it's one of these oh shit moments. So I, uh, what does idiot here do? I load up and I go to Disney World. I literally went to Disney World. I got down there, rented a place, um, bought the annual pass, started going to Disney World every single day. Lasted about six weeks. The Secret Service, they came and got me, arrested me, sent me to prison. Then I escaped from prison. And that, I was out about... Uh, about four or five weeks on that, they caught me again, sent me back to prison, and I ended up uh, serving the rest of my time at that point. Um, and that's that's the background story. So I got out in 2011. Um, no taste of breaking the law whatsoever. And what three things got me turned around. Uh, the first was my sister, Denise. She had disowned me because I was dating this erotic dancer. Um, didn't have anything to do with me. Wouldn't take a phone call, nothing else. And we had always been the, um, the siblings that had been very close together. Uh, she knew I broke the law and everything, but she she put up with that. She disowned me and didn't come back into my life until after I escaped. I had escaped. I got caught. I was at a county jail where they only had a 10-minute visitation, and she drives seven and a half hours pregnant to come see me and tell me she loves me. 
Uh, she saw me for 10 minutes, and after that, they send me out, and I don't see her again for five and a half years. So that's the first thing that got me turned around. Um, the next thing was, is I was released in 2011, had no taste, I did not want to break the law whatsoever. Um, I was on probation, could not touch a computer. So I had job offers from Deloitte Consulting, had job offers from um, uh, one of these simulated fishing companies, No Before couple of payment processors as well. Could not take them. I got to the point where I was applying for positions like at McDonald's, uh, places, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, places like that. Couldn't take those because that's computer. Finally, I got to the point where I was like, well, can I work as a waiter at, at a restaurant? And they were like, no, because that's a computer and credit cards. So I, I didn't have a job. I was... Uh, I was borrowing money from my father, from my sister. I had a roommate that was taking care of uh, half of the rent at the flat. I was um, I was on food stamps, government assistance, so that I could afford to eat, and didn't have any money at all. Couldn't get a job. I had um, they tell they tell everyone when you leave prison to get something you care about and find a job, and the chances of you going back are pretty low at that point. Well, I had a cat, <laughs> and. Uh, I had enough money to feed my cat, and I didn't even have enough money to buy tissue paper for the bathroom. So I go to the store one day, and I buy the cat some food, and I'm walking out of out of, out of the shop. And right as you're walking out, they had this kiosk there that had toilet paper, and I ended up, that was my first crime when I got out. It took about two years for me to commit that, but uh, I ended up stealing toilet paper. What happens is, is my wife now, Michelle, she finds me about that same same point in time. Um, I didn't find her. I'd been dating the exact same type of women I had been dating. Uh, basically, I was I was walking around wearing this, this proverbial sign that said, send me back to prison. But uh, she finds me. I ended up moving with, in with her about two months after that. Um, finally got a job. The only job I could get was pushing a manual lawnmower. Um, did that 10 hours a day. 50 hours a week, I was making $400 a week, and I was happy. I mean, I was doing something. I was productive. The problem was is that it got cold, and when it gets cold, the, ga- the grass doesn't grow, and you can't mow anything. So my job ended, and um, a lot of the reason that I commit crime is is this, this need of showing my love to people, of showing that you're important in my life, and the way that I show that is to give them some sort of expensive gift. Um, with this, what happens is, is my job ends and Michelle is the only one working and I'm like, I have to do something. I have to, I have to show her that I'm worth it. So what I do is I'm like, well, I can bring food in the house if nothing else. So I get online, get some stolen credit card data and start ordering food to drop addresses. And I get caught. Um, it was a controlled delivery. I get arrested. Michelle had no idea what I was doing. So they sent me back to prison for 10 months. And she, uh, she never hesitated. She didn't question it. Didn't even uh, never no no sign of wanting to leave or whatever. And uh, that's when I found out she didn't need Brett Johnson for the stuff that I could give her. She just wanted me for me at that point. And I had never had that since probably my sister. So that, that got me, that hit hard all of a sudden. Um, I served my 10 months after I got out. We got married shortly after that. Of course, I've still had the same problem before I find a job. And I know by that point, I know what my triggers are. I know I'll go so far until I actually break the law again. So what I do is I looked at Michelle and I was off probation. I could touch a computer and I looked at her and I was like, let me see what I can do. So I'm of all places, I sign on to LinkedIn.com, create an account, and I message this guy named Keith Malarski. He was an FBI agent. He retired like four weeks ago. But I messaged him, and I was he was involved in my arrest, all these other cybercrime arrests over the years. And I sent him a note. I was like, um, I, I appreciate everything you did. I respect you greatly. You did a wonderful job. And by the way, I would like to be legal. And the guy, he, he, he believed me. He took me under his wing, gave me advice, gave me references, does that to this day. So that was the first step. The next step was uh, the head of the Identity Theft Council in the United States. He took me in, uh, gave me a chance. From there, it was Carice Hendrick of the Cardinal Present Group. And then it was Microsoft. And today, I, I speak all over the world. I consult with Fortune 50 companies, financial organizations, uh, consumer groups, just everyone that I can possibly talk to, I do or consult with, I do, in the hopes that I can use the knowledge that I have to make people safe from the type of person that I used to be. And that's that's my background story. Wow. Such a, an interesting backstory. And, and I want to thank you for, for taking our listeners on that. Um, I mean, it's definitely a movie. It's in some day at some point. It's, a, it's just Well, they're, they're working on a TV series and there's a couple of books being worked on and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's this whirlwind ride all of a sudden. You know, I, I, I become this legal person and uh, uh, all of the, the benefits that are coming to me is, is completely unbelievable. And I'm very for it all. 
Fascinating. You mentioned a couple of moments ago you went on to LinkedIn and you connected uh, with that individual and you're now helping individuals, companies and organisations avoid and protect themselves against cybercrime, which is a which is a growing issue right across the world. I first came across you, Brett, the online broadcast with Carice Hendricks, <laughs> which you just mentioned a couple of moments ago when I was out one day for a walk and I was, I was going, I need some new podcasts to listen to. Because there is only so much entrepreneurial podcasts that, that, is person, true. that, is true. <laughs> that one person can listen to. How to change your life in 90 days. You know, I was like, right. I, I'm done with this stuff. And I was searching through iTunes and I came across the online broadcast and I was like, you know what? This is different. This is something connected with kind of what I do in the in the educational space that I work in with with young people. And I thought I'm going to give this a listen to for the next sixty minutes, and and that was it. I was instantly captured, and I said, you know what? I got to reach out to this guy and see can Thank we you. can we get him on the Zero Lives podcast. So let's <laughs> chat a little bit about the internet. Something that most sure. people use every day without giving it you know so much as a second thought. What are the three different areas which make up? the internet. So, so the three areas. So most people use Google to, to search the internet, Google, uh, Google being uh, duck, duck, go, things like that. So, so whatever you search for on Google, those results make up what's called the surface web or the clear web. So there's three parts of the internet. There's the surface web, there's the deep web, and then within the deep web, there's the dark web. So basically anything that you can find on Google makes up the surface web. That's around three to 4% of the overall internet. And that's a high estimate for that. Some estimates say it's only 2%. So that's at most 4% of the internet as a whole. The other 96% is the deep web. So that, when you look at the deep web, that's stuff like uh, emails. It's um, stuff that's behind a paywall or, or a subscription wall. It's bank account information. It's all this all this data that's on the internet as a whole. All right, the stuff that 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 cannot be found by simply plugging an address into a web browser. All right, it, it doesn't have real addresses to it. So that's the ninety six percent of the internet. That deep web. Think of it as a um, as an iceberg. You see a lot of a lot of pictures of trying to illustrate this as an iceberg, and I, and the top that's above the water is the surface web. Everything below is the deep web and then down deep is the dark web. So the 96% is the deep web. Within the deep web itself, we have this thing called the dark web. And how to define the dark web is, is the problem. In, um, in the mid to late 90s, the United States Navy, they created this thing called the Tor Browser. And the Tor Browser was built so that uh, intelligence operatives, dissidents of foreign countries, they could communicate with people or get word out to someone and no one would be able to tell where they were or who they were. So think of it as your eye IP address. And for those who don't know, your IP, your IP address is basically your computer's phone number. So your IP address is wrapped in layers upon layers of other IP addresses, and it bounces from one point to another all across the world. That's the way the Tor browser works. Tor stands for the onion router because it's like layers of an onion. It's just wrapped and wrapped and wrapped so that no one can find out who you actually are. Okay, so the U.S. Navy ended up creating this in 98 or 99. The Tor browser goes open source. So it was originally created for intelligence operatives, dissidents of foreign countries, whistleblowers, things like that in order to to make a better world. The problem is, is that when it went open source, what people tend to forget is that technology, if technology is, is can be used to launder money, if it can be used to remain anonymous, the first adopters of that technology tends to be criminals. We saw it with beepers. We saw it with Bitcoin. We see it with the Tor browser. And uh, the first main adopters that came in were these criminals that understood almost immediately, hey, if I use the Tor browser, if I know how to actually use it properly, the chances of me being identified pretty low at that point. Well, right after that, they discovered that not only could they surf the web by using the Tor browser, but they could also build websites on this Tor network. And that's that's kind of this entire creation of what most people consider as the dark web. So think of the dark web as and, and this is where it gets kind of iffy on this kind of stuff. So if we're just talking about criminal stuff, you have to use the Tor browser to uh, to access a lot of criminal uh, stuff. But not all dark web material is on the dark web. So you have things like the, the Dream Market, uh, Wall Street Market, Silk Road or Silk Road 3, uh, Dread, all these websites that deal with illegal information or 
product. And those specific sites are on the dark web. But you don't have to just rely on the dark web to buy credit card details or child porn or anything else like that or drugs. You can go to Facebook groups, for example. Facebook has a lot of hidden groups that deal in that subject matter. Reddit has a lot of groups that talk about drug trafficking or fraud, things like that. Uh, there's surface websites like um, like hiddenhand.club, which talks specifically about financial fraud, how to commit it. it sell, they sell credit card information, bank logins, uh, products and services to help criminals be better criminals as well. So it becomes it becomes kind of iffy as to where you draw the line as as what is dark web and what's not. All right. But understand that that, too, that just because it's on the dark web doesn't mean that it's illegal. There's a lot of legal information that can be accessed by using the Tor browser. Um, you can a lot of universities use it. Dissidents still use it to try to get around countries, firewalls. Um, whistleblowers use it to tell what companies may be doing bad or what governments may do, be doing bad. Uh, foreign uh, foreign and, and, and United States operatives use it to communicate with each other. Uh, so there's a lot of good that comes from it. The, the bad thing is, is that there's a lot of crime that comes with it as well. When many people think of cybercrime, they think of stealing money. We've touched on that already, but it's much more than just this. What other sort of areas fall under the cybercrime umbrella? Sure. So, so to kind of understand cybercrime, you, you need to know, understand the motivation. So most motivations boil down to three, and that's status, cash, or ideology. And and most of the time it's cash. We're seeing this transition, though, from cash over to ideology. So if you're looking at cybercrime, certainly you've got account takeovers, you've got uh, financial fraud, laundering money, everything else. But you've also got these things like fake news. That's criminal. I mean, it's criminal to try to influence someone's behavior by putting out fake reports. And that fake news can be news reports. It can be fake reviews for a for a website. So, you know, you go to Amazon and you're I did this recently. I went to Amazon and I was looking for an SD card and I was going through all the sellers that were on Amazon and I kept seeing these these reviews that they said that this seller was selling a pirated SD card or he was selling a 32 gig SD card as a 400 gig SD SD card. So there were all these negative reviews on there. And I my response was, okay, I can't buy from these guys. So I had to try to find a review that didn't say that. And I finally did. But but the problem is, is that how do you know whether that review is true or not? Because on Amazon, the estimate right now is that 70%, 70% of all the, those reviews are fake. So if you're if you're a seller and the lowest that you can sell one of these cards for is $100, yet you've got somebody else that's able to sell it at $80, how do you as a seller make sure that the customer comes to you? Well, one of those ways is, is to post fake reviews on the competition's website saying that they're selling stolen items or pirated items, used items, anything else like that. So that's that's one of the things that we're seeing for 2019. That's one of the big trends is this this idea of fake re, of fake reviews influencing who you buy, who you sell to, everything else. So you've got that going on. You've got uh, the child pornography going on. You've got uh, IoT device problems. Uh, so people use IoT devices to, to set up uh, uh, proxy addresses for criminals to use. You've got you've got spammers out there. Just You've got a, an entire list of things that fall outside of the purview of just financial crime that's, that's being committed. The reviews are very interesting because, you know, as somebody who shops quite extensively online and as do a lot of you know people I know they they use websites such as Amazon and, and the reviews do influence you whether to buy that product or not and it's I think it's a very very important component and, and this is probably something that the platforms themselves are actually struggling with how do we deal with the fake reviews is there a process for handling them how do we get them removed it will in some case have a knock-on implication on their business oh absolutely I mean okay you look at it so and I'm sure you're the same way I, I go to Amazon and and so I'll read the reviews of the product and, OK, the reviews are great. Uh, you know, a lot of five star reviews, but I'm more interested in seeing what those one star reviews are yeah, saying. Yeah. I want to know what's wrong with the product. Me too. So, I always read them. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I and I weigh those one star reviews much, much higher than those five stars. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll read those. And and the problem is, is that I know because I'm in this business, I know that a lot of those reviews are fake. But even when they're fake, they 
still influence my decision making. Now, now certainly companies like Amazon, they fight against it religiously, but criminals are very good about circumventing the rules that Amazon and these other companies put in place to try to make sure the reviews are proper. One of the things that we see now on Amazon is you see these little tags that say verified buyer. Mm. This person actually bought the product. Well, that's a nice tag to have until you realize that what criminals were doing is they would order, you know, these cheap little products. They would order these products being sent to a buyer's address, to the actual to, to the actual address on file of the credit card. The person would get the item and then the criminal would write the review up at that point. Wow. Whether it was good or bad, he would write the review at that point to, to skew things out. We, we saw that going on. We see a lot of account takeovers like with uh, Trustpilot went through this entire thing. And Trustpilot's one of these review sites. So it's a site of nothing but reviews for stores, products, everything else. So just, just a few months ago, Trustpilot went through and they're still having that problem of criminals coming in, they fish the Trustpilot customers or clients, get their details, take over their accounts, and then they start posting reviews, whether positive or negative, uh, on products, services, merchants, and everything else. Uh, you have Facebook groups that uh, operate nothing but review systems or review groups, and you can go in there and you can buy so many positive reviews or so many negative reviews in order to slam your competitors. The problem is, and, and you know, I think we talked about that before. I, when I was a criminal, one of the big, one of the, I had several different little catchphrases. And one of the catchphrases that I had was the perception of truth is much more important than truth itself. All right. So if you're online, which is more important that you're getting a, an email from your bank or that you're getting a phishing email from someone like me and you believe it's your bank, I would argue that the most important thing is that that phishing email that comes through. If I can get you to believe that I'm your bank or that I'm this merchant or whoever, that is more important than the actual bank emailing you because you're going to lose all your money, your product, your service, whatever it is that, you, that I'm trying to get from you, your personal information, anything else like that. Um, that was one of the things that, that Shadow Crew is one of these teaching groups as well. So that's one of the things I preached and taught to people on like a daily basis. You know, it doesn't matter what's true. It matters what you can convince someone of. And that's, you know, through those social engineering techniques that you see being deployed through social media platforms. Absolutely. And we see that with the election process. You saw that with, uh, with the Russians trying to influence the United States election. And and before I try to get political on this, let me say outright that the United States has been has been very prevalent over the decades of doing the same thing to other countries as well. So it's not like the Russians just invented this stuff. It's just that it's in 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 the public mind now, this fake news and how fake news how how the perception of reality influences actual reality. Now what are some of the necessities of successful cybercrime? If you could sort of sum them up in, you know, sort of a couple of moments what would be the necessities that you would need to think about in order to be successful? Sure. So um, there, there's basically four things. So the necessities of actually uh, of the crime itself are three, and that is gathering data, committing the crime and cashing out. So all three things has to work or the entire crime fails. The problem is, is that a criminal is not good in all three things. A criminal is good in one thing. Sometimes he's good in two. Most of the time, he, he, there's no way you can find someone that can do all three of those things. So what happens is, is these large communication channels, these forums like Hidden Hand, like Shadow Crew, like Carter Planet, these forums exist in order to give that one specific criminal who's good in one area, he can then network with other criminals who are good in the areas where he isn't. So if he's good at gathering data, he can then find someone that can commit the crime, someone that is able to put cash in pocket. They all three work together and they make a lot of money at that point. Um, one of the examples, of course, was the Tesco bank breach back in 2016. And it was on Alphabay. So on Alphabay, you had uh, a brand new guy who comes up. He says, I'm stealing $1,000 a week from this bank. Been doing it for a year. No flags. Two weeks later, Tesco's hit for $2.5 million um, <laughs> because of that networking structure. So those are the dynamics that the the necessities of how to commit the crime. The other thing is, is a willingness to do it. And, uh, you know, in, in the business world, we see this, uh, this idea, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Well, criminals, cyber criminals take that to heart. They're like, OK, what would I do? Well, what I can do is I can steal two point five million from from Tesco. I can steal one hundred sixty thousand dollars a week from the Internal Revenue Service. What would you do if you weren't afraid? It's all about the willingness to do it. Do you have the will to try it and to follow through with it? In terms of costs to 
individuals and businesses. Do we have any idea on what the cost is in relation <laughs> to this type of crime, or is it, is it well, just astronomical? It's huge. It's huge. Um, 2017, um, over $450 billion. Um, in, in the UK last year, the losses for cybercrime were $150 billion, uh, billion pounds. Uh, for, for small businesses, we're looking at an average loss per business that's a victim of over 80,000 US dollars. For uh, United States citizens that get hit, uh, you're looking at, a, at anywhere from $2,500 per victim up to around $9,000 per victim. So the uh, it's it's astronomical what you're looking at, and it continues to grow. I mean, these numbers are only going to continue to increase because what we're seeing now is the platform itself makes the ease of entry for anyone who wants to engage in cybercrime much, much easier. The, the dollar amounts are very low, so they don't have to worry about having a lot of money to engage in these crimes. There's a, there's a network there that teaches the people how to commit the crime. They can buy a tutorial for as low as $50. They can take a live class that actually has an instructor that teaches them how to commit these crimes for as low as $600. Um, it, it's just one of these things that it's now a problem. So I was there when cybercrime was an individual thing. I, I watched it turn into a business and now I've seen it grow into its own economy. And now we're at the point that law enforcement cannot arrest their way out of the problem. There has to be other things done besides just arresting and incarcerating people these days. Let's talk about some of the things that individuals, listeners of this podcast can do to better protect themselves. So, you know, I suppose education is really, really important and prevention is key. But what would be some of the things that you would suggest that people can do in order to to better protect themselves? Sure. So um, I, in my presentations, I show a lot of how easy it is for a criminal to pull up someone's personal information. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that we, we have this idea that there are things that we can do to make sure our information is not compromised. And my, my counterpoint to that is, hey, it's too late for that. Everyone's information is compromised. Uh, last year alone, we had 1,500 reported breaches. Of those just reported breaches, 2.6 billion records were compromised. That's just last year. Your information is out there. So now the problem is, is okay, if we can accept that, how do we make sure that our information can't be used in a in some sort of criminal way. The, the first, if you're looking from a business point of view, is to have proper security awareness training. And by that, I mean, are you are you engaging in security training because of compliance or are you actually doing it to do some good? Because there's a difference there. So so the first is to to realize that, OK, it's, it's fine to do it for compliance, but you need to be focusing on it to make a difference. And one of the big things that we're seeing now is this transition of training the employee to to be a safe employee not just at work, but at home. So if you can teach them to practice good safety habits at home, it will translate to the work environment as well. So I'm a big advocate of that. I'm a big advocate of if you're doing pen testing, if you're doing security training, like uh, uh, phishing simulation training or something like that, that you you act in the exact same way that a criminal would act. And, and what I mean by that is, to give you an example, um, Microsoft, when I worked for Microsoft, they had a phishing simulation um, email that went out. And the email said that, we're adding two more vacation days to the calendar. It did not mention what those vacation days were, but it had a little PDF calendar at the bottom. And the question was, is how many people will click on that calendar? And the answer was everyone. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, two more days off. Exactly. They, they had to know what day. So everyone yeah. clicks on it. Well, what happened was, is everyone that clicked on it raised so much chaos, so much drama came from that. So many complaints that Amazon, uh, not Amazon, but uh, Microsoft then sends out an email email saying, hey, we apologize. We will never send out a phishing email like this again. That's that's a problem because that's exactly the type of email a criminal would send out. So if you're not if you're not training the employees to actually identify what criminals are doing, how are you going to stop anything when criminals decide to target you? Because it's not a problem. It's not a question of if you'll be hit. It's when you'll be hit. So that's the number one thing is is proper training, teaching the employee to stay safe. The second thing is, is to be aware of your online presence. So what are you sharing online? And a lot of people think, well, you know, I share some stuff on Facebook. But the problem is, is that most people share everything on Facebook. Most people have a lot of friends on Facebook that they've never met. They have no idea who they are. So you need to be aware of the information that you share. And that's not to say not to use Facebook, but it is to say only share information with people who you actually know. Only become friends with people who you actually know. Because if you don't, that becomes an issue at that point. Proper security 
security awareness training, be be aware of your uh, of your environment, be aware of your credit environment. So it, I'm big on monitoring every single thing that you've got. And by that, I mean your credit report, your bank account, your credit card logins, your email logins, your merchant logins, monitor everything, make sure you control everything. The, the other problem, of course, is, and I ask this during a conference, my question is, is how many people out there use the exact same password across multiple websites? And you, yeah. <laughs> usually in, a, in one of these, uh, in one of these events, and I'll have a, a room of, you know, maybe a thousand people, 2000, whatever. But um, in one of these events, I may get four or five people that will raise their hand. Well, I know immediately that there are a lot of people out there who aren't raising their hand, like 80% of everyone uses the exact same password. So I laugh and I get everyone to kind of raise their hands by admitting, hey, I do it right now. I do it. So, you know, we break the ground on that. Then we start talking about, you know, we're never trained as people on how to come up with a secure password. We go to a website. We're told use so many characters, uppercase, lowercase, throw in a few symbols. And it's got a graph there that says weak, weak, weak. Finally, it says strong. And you're sitting there and you have no idea how it got to be strong. So since that's a strong password, well, it's strong here. It's going to be strong elsewhere. So you tend to use that password or a variation of that password somewhere else. Criminals know that. That's that entire idea of credential stuffing. So what I say to combat that is use a password manager. Something, I don't care what it is. You can use uh, LastPass, whatever, but use a password manager. It takes that problem out of your hands. It uh, generates the secure passwords for you, logs in for you. The only It'll change the passwords. The only thing you have to remember is the main password itself. And, and to be fair, just because I know what the news report is this week, Blur got hit. It's a password manager. It got hit. It got compromised. Just was about to ask you that question. (laughs) And I remember somebody asking me this, some 15 year old asked me, I was talking about a password manager and they were like, what happens if the password manager gets breached? "Mm, I mean, how safe are they? Well, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that they're far safer than you saving the passwords in your browser or writing it down in a notepad on your PC. It's far safer than that. The the problem is, is that people, people tend to think that every, that, that fraud or safety is a, an all or nothing proposition. The problem is, is that we will never, you will never be able to stomp out all fraud. You will never be able to stomp out all crime. Uh, a password manager is extremely secure, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have compromises every now and then. And, and my point is, is that Yes, that may happen. The chances of that happening is very small. And even then, it's still far, far safer than what you're doing right now. Yes, so use the password manager. Yeah, that's a, that's a good piece of advice. When it comes to um, being protected, are there any sort of interesting or exciting developments on the horizon that companies and organizations are, are testing or are, are, you know, are trying out? I mean, where are we seeing things moving to factor authentication? What other developments are there on the horizon to protect? people. Developments on the horizon. And and here's where I have to put this little caveat in. A lot of security vendors, a lot of anti-fraud uh, services and everything else, it, it harkens back to those days when people sold snake oil. Mm-hmm. They would promise a lot of things and they would simply not deliver. A lot of the times we see companies that, that come out with a great product and they never innovate on that product. So the, the product comes out and it's initially wonderful. A lot of people sign up for it. A lot of merchants, uh, companies sign up for this, this security product. And then that product is never innovated on whatsoever. And over three to five years, it becomes absolutely useless at that point. So my first thing is, is make sure if you're out there trying to sign on to a, a company for personal use or business use, make sure it's a company that's got that's good, that has been known to innovate on their product. All right. Make, that's number one. The second thing is looking at, at trends and everything. I like the idea of things like machine learning, behavioral biometrics. People talk about blockchain a lot. And, you know, I, I love the idea of blockchain. So far, I've not seen really very much done with blockchain except generating tokens for ICOs. That may come in the future. I know Microsoft is working on uh, uh, using blockchain to make sure that drugs aren't counterfeit when they're shipped from one place to another. That's working out pretty well. But other than stuff like that, I don't really see a lot of, uh, of growth using the blockchain for security purposes yet. In the meantime, behavioral biometrics have been shown to be great. The problem with that, and, and by, by behavioral, what I mean is the angle you hold your mobile device, the way you type, the way you walk, uh, things like that. They, they are specific to each individual user. The problem is, is that when you when you're gauging biometrics like that, you have to collect a lot of data. 
in order to make sure that the user is that user. Because if, if you're not, if you don't collect enough data, there's a margin of error there that a criminal can walk in and, and use a device to pretend that he's you. So biometrics will work. The problem is gathering enough data. Um, machine learning is great as long as it's real-time machine learning and as long as it's not just machine learning. So you still have to have the human element in there. Not only that, but you have to, when you're looking at security, you have to take a layered approach. So it's not just machine learning. You, you need a rules-based system in there as well. You need uh, uh, humans on the ground. You need AVS. You need, you need all these things layered in there as well because not just one company is going to look at the problem and, and their specific service solve the overall problem. There, there's going to be holes in there that you need to use other services or techniques to plug. Brett, we have covered a lot of ground in this episode today, and it's been <laughs> such a such a fascinating uh, insight. To, well, it's to, been a longer episode than usual, I'm sure. Yeah, but, but you know what? It's been it's been such a an interesting insight to to your world, to to where you started out and to, to where you are now. And I think there's been a, a tremendous amount of value to our listeners of this episode of the podcast. And I and I think we need to pick this up again at some time. Um, Absolutely, we, we need to do a follow up. And and I think even you know looking for opportunities, see if we can if we can get you across to Ireland, to the UK to to deliver some of of this content for for businesses and organizations. I think it would be wonderful. Well, I, let me tell you, I will I will come on. Anytime you, you send me an invitation, I will be here. I love your show. I think it's great, and I'm honored that you invited me on. No, I really, really appreciate that. Now, before we wrap up, tell us where people can find out a little bit more about what you do. So if there's a business or an organization out there who's who's maybe listening into the podcast and, and, and wants to avail of your services, wants to reach out to you, wants to get in touch with you, what's the website address? How can they make that happen? Sure. So uh, so my website address for consulting and speaking is www.anglerfish. That's A-N-G-E-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H, anglerfish.com. The podcast is available at www.onlinefraudcast.com. That's the first podcast we've got. Uh, later this year, I'm releasing a podcast that is Brett Johnson's story. Uh, so it'll just be like the background story that we, we I told today, just more in depth on that. And then hopefully later this year, releasing a uh, an interview platform type pod, podcast as well. So, but for the meantime, go to onlinefraudcast dot com, go to anglerfish dot com, and you can contact from there. You can look me up on LinkedIn as well. Brilliant! I would highly recommend the online broadcast. It's in my favorites for iTunes. It's what I listen Thank to you. now when I go out to that. <laughs> and there's so much learning opportunity in that podcast with with yourself and Carice. So I want to I want to thank you guys for creating that content. I think it's so valuable. There's always something that you can learn in that podcast. And again, I'll refer to the link to that podcast in the show notes of, of this particular episode of the Zero Lives podcast. Outstanding. And also, I hope some of our listeners do reach out. And I know me and you are going to talk a little bit more about other opportunities, potentially seeing where we can we can sort of maybe work together, see if there's any opportunities to get you across here. But I, I really do want to thank you, Brett, for your time today and in, uh, in joining me on this episode of the podcast. You've added so much value to the listeners. And I'm really looking forward to continuing our our conversation uh, again. Wayne, I, I do appreciate it. I'm very thankful to be here. Thank you again. Brett Johnson, thanks for taking time out to join me on episode 42 of the Zero Lives Left podcast. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. What an amazing guest to have on for episode 42 of the Zero Lives Left podcast. Brett talked openly and honestly about his time as a cyber criminal to being on the FBI's most wanted list to turning it all around to now working with businesses and organizations and individuals right across the world helping them protect themselves against cybercrime. So many great takeaways in this episode. Brett talked about the importance of proper security awareness training for businesses and organizations, safe employees at home, practicing good safety habits, penetration testing, and also being aware of your online presence. And this is something that many people forget about. They post things on social media platforms, they share images, they share all sorts of information, but they don't think about who has access 
to that information. The importance of being careful about not accepting friend requests from people you don't know. Once you accept that person as a friend, you let them into your digital world. Brett talked about the different types of cybercrime and also some practical things that each and every one of us can do to help protect ourselves online. Fake reviews online and also how they influence who and what you buy online. What an amazing episode. I want to thank Brett once again for his time joining me on this episode of the podcast. Make sure you check out his website. I'll make the link available in the show notes. And do stop by and check out his podcast, which he hosts with Carice Hendricks, the online fraudcast. Don't forget, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, please do rate and review the podcast. Reviews are really important and they do help other people find out about the show. Don't forget to stop by the Zero Lives Left podcast.com website. Lots of previous episodes of the show. The podcasting ebook is now available to download. I want to thank you once again for tuning into this episode of the show. I'm going to be coming back very soon with episode 43 of the Zero Lives Left podcast. Thanks for listening to the Zero Lives Left podcast with Wayne Denner. Make sure to check out Wayne's new book, The Student's Guide to an Epic Online Reputation, available from WayneDenner.com and follow him on Twitter at Wayne Denner. Tune in next time.